You'll have to bear with me. My voice is older than the rest of me this morning, I think. And that's bad enough. Did you hear the story of the young man, freshman in college, uh, enrolled in Philosophy 101? After two or three weeks in class, he met a buddy of his for a cup of coffee. And he says to the buddy, he said, did you know there's no such thing as absolute truth? And the buddy says, are you sure? And he says, absolutely. That's what Professor Boykin said this morning. And his friend says, well, how can that be true? His friend's question was the right question. How can a statement that says there's no such thing as truth possibly be true? That's what the logician in me calls a self-denying statement. If the statement is true that there is no truth, then the statement itself is false. If we allow the statement there is no truth just might be false, then truth could exist and the statement is also false. But there are people in our world today who say just that and many others who say we cannot know what is true and what is false. And some say what's true for you isn't necessarily true for me and what's true for me isn't necessarily true for you. And someone has proposed that we use the phrase true truth for anything that's especially certain. And in the film Secondhand Lions, which is one of my favorites, I'm not much of a movie buff, but I like that one. Uncle Hub is explaining to young Walter some things he needs to believe if he's going to become a man. And Hub says, it doesn't matter if they are true. What matters is whether you believe them. Every point at that time at that point in the movie, I think, oh? On the other hand, there are those who recognize truth but would rather put other things first like saving face or getting out of trouble or not hurting someone's feelings or well, name your own poison. I don't care. When I was preaching in Southern Illinois before I moved up here nearly 31 years ago, uh, Went by the grade school one afternoon to pick up my second grader, who's now 41, which tells you how long ago this was. Wasn't the son who's visiting with me today. It's his younger brother. And Shan got in the van, and I said, well, Shan, what would you learn in school today? <clears throat> he says, we learned it's okay to lie sometimes. Okay. Well, it so happened that my secretary at the church had a grandson who was in the same class. And so next morning at work, I asked Jean to ask Todd what he had learned about lying in school. Well, she came back in the next morning and told me Todd had learned the same thing Shan had. It's okay to lie sometimes. So I went to talk to the teacher. They had had a film strip. That dates it, doesn't it? No narration to go with it, just words at the bottom of the page. And the film strip presented two scenarios that I remember. One, mother's working in the kitchen and gets a phone call. A neighbor wants to come over, and she says, no, we can't have company this afternoon. We're going to go see Grandma. The kid who's listening gets all excited. We're going to go to Grandma's. And Mom says, no, I just didn't want her to come over and waste my time. The other scene is Dad is fixing a basketball goal as a birthday present, and the kid asks what he's doing, and Dad fudges around it so as not to ruin the surprise. My mother used to say, ask me no questions. I'll tell you no lies. But anyway... Uh, the, the film strip was wrong on all points. If the discussion said it was wrong to lie, then you destroy the credibility of parents that kids ought to count on because the parents were in these two scenarios. If you uh, agree with what the parents did, you're thinking it's okay to lie sometimes. And 
I went into some deal and investigated. I wrote a letter to the teacher. I wrote a letter to the principal, objected to the whole scenario at some length. And it just so happened the next Sunday morning, <clears throat> I was preaching through Ephesians, came to chapter 4, where it says one of the signs of Christian maturity is speaking the truth in love. And to illustrate how truth had fallen on hard times, I told the whole scenario with more detail than I've told you about what went on at the elementary school that week. That afternoon, two of the young mothers in the church went to see a couple of the deacons, not to talk about what had happened at the school, but to talk about me and object to my bad-mouthing their schools from the pulpit. The deacons took it to a board meeting at which I did not happen to be present because I was at the funeral home for a, a visitation for a funeral. It was going to be the next day, as I recall. And sad to say, I was in trouble. Personally, I was appalled that the reputation of the schools was more important to them than their kids were being taught it's okay to lie sometimes. Now that was more than 40 years ago, more than 30 years ago, excuse me. And even now, even more than then, truth has fallen on hard times. We hear all this stuff about fake news. Politically, it has become impossible to tell who's telling the truth. I'm beginning to believe of politicians what counselors used to say about drug addicts. Are they lying? Well, if their mouth is moving, yes, they're lying. Uh, with a few notable exceptions, any time a politician's mouth is moving, he's lying. Mike Pence is one of the exceptions. But anyway. There is a significant percentage of our society that says there's no such thing as truth. Now, I could go on and on and on with examples, and so could you, but we won't. But folks, if there is no truth, there's no basis for faith, nothing to direct our lives, and nothing to hope for. Our society has become very much like the story of the theologian and the atheistic philosopher who got into an awful argument. A philosopher, accused the theologian, is someone who hunts in a coal bin in total darkness for a black cat that isn't there. Oh, countered the philosopher, if I were a theologian, I'd find the cat. Or I would say I had and believe my own lie. Folks, without truth, we grope in the dark, searching for stuff that isn't there. If there is no truth, we don't know if the cat is there, even if there is a cat or any such thing as cats, generic. If there is no truth or no way to tell the truth, the babblings of a baby, the writing of a monkey let loose on your word processor, and the pronounces of a preacher or professor are all of equal worth and meaning. Jesus said, I am the truth, that Satan is the father of lies. And whether we follow the Lord with all his promises or Satan depends on largely, largely on how we view and handle truth. But to quote Pontius Pilate, what is truth? I think we need to look carefully at how we define truth and apply that definition to everything we read, see, hear, or think. I want to propose a simple, clear definition of truth. Truth is simply any representation, whether it's pictures, words, video, poetry, music, written statement, political pronouncement, doesn't make any difference. Anything that expresses an idea that accurately portrays reality. If there's reality, there is truth. Truth must portray reality. 
If the information we are presenting or taking in does not line up with reality, it is not true, no matter how much we wish it was. If it does, it is true, no matter how much we wish it were not. Now be careful, though. Before we start criticizing the politicians or news media or whoever your favorite boogeyman is, be careful. When we badmouth others and their misuse of truth or falsehood, we must first look to others and see how we handle the truth we have and know. I think this story is from C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters where the senior devil is coaching the junior devil on how to deal with his assignment. I'm not positive where I got this, but I think that's where it's from. Anyway, the junior devil is lamenting the fact that his assignment has found truth. And the senior devil says, not all is lost, as the junior devil's lamenting. says, the fact that he stumbled on the truth is not nearly as important as what he does with it. Now, the nature of truth is an intensely important subject. And I wish we had five hours this morning to deal with it, but we're not going to. Maybe in our time more than at any other time in history, knowing what truth is, is of utmost importance. I wish we had the time, but we don't. Today, I want us to take a common story. It's usually associated with Christmas and see what it says about how we react to truth. For the question for today is not so much what is truth, but what do we do with the truth we have? Now, I know it's been a few weeks since Christmas, but we're going to look back at part of the Christmas story that we don't usually look at very closely. And this incident actually took place at least six weeks after Jesus was born. So our timing's about right. In this story, there are several examples of how people involved responded to truth. Examples that are worth our looking into more than we do. Our tendency, of course, to be very much like our society. We talk about the birth of Christ right over Christmas Day, and then we move on to other things, just like the store sell all the Christmas stuff at half price for three days and then start putting up the Valentine's displays. If you don't believe that, you wouldn't burn it in Walmart on January the 1st. I don't want to do that. I want us to go back to that story and look again and see how the people in, in it reacted to the truth they had. I think we'll all find ourselves in here somewhere. The story is found in Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to read the first 18 verses. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. 
When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened to their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and incense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. <clears throat> when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem in his vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet, Isaiah, prophet Jeremiah excuse me, was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. You know, we don't exactly usually think of Herod as any kind of example, but I want to look first and see how did he react to truth. Now, if you didn't know the end of the story and saw only Herod's first reaction to the wise men, you would say, well, he's not so bad. Herod received the wise men, got the information they needed, even said he wanted to worship the baby king himself. And that sounds nice. But if you knew Herod like I know Herod, some of you are old enough to remember, if you knew Susie like I know Susie. If you knew Herod like I know Herod, Herod was crazy. Crazy jealous of anyone he thought might be trying to take his throne. He had killed, or had had somebody else kill, many of his own family because of his insane jealousy. This shouldn't surprise us all that much. It was rather typical of royalty of the time. Nero did the same thing, but anyway. Herod's murderous jealousy was not all that unusual, just more extreme than most others. It was so bad, though, in fact. Herod was so jealous for his throne and killed so many of his own family that Caesar Augustus, the emperor at the time, once commented, knowing of the Jews' refusal to kill and eat pork, remarked that it was safer to be Herod's pig than his son. This time it should have been different. By the time Jesus was born, Herod was nearly 70 years old. He had been sick on and off since his, fa since his, his favorite wife, Mariamne, had been executed at his orders. And after her death, he used to wander through the palace calling, Mariamne, Mariamne. And the guy was nuts. But this time it was no local yokel or ambitious family member who wanted his throne. It was a baby, a newborn baby. Herod would surely be dead by the time this baby was old enough to do anything, let alone take Herod's throne. Herod shouldn't have cared. But that was not the most unusual thing. What blows my mind is that Herod believed the wise men. He believed their story about a miraculous star. He knew who they were talking about. Did you notice? He made the jump from king of the Jews to the Christ almost immediately. And he asked the teachers where the Christ was to be born. Herod also believed the teachers and priests, teachers of the law. They knew the prophecy. They quoted it to Herod. He didn't hesitate for a moment. He accepted the idea that Christ had been born, and he knew where. 
There you have it. Herod had been handed a nugget of pure truth from God. A special baby had born. His birth had been born. His birth was fulfillment of prophecy. He was the rightful king of the Jews, the son of David that God had promised so long ago. So how did Herod react? He believed it was true. What was his reaction to the truth? He fought it. Now, isn't that amazing? He knew the truth, even accepted it as true, but decided to fight against it. I call that open antagonism. He turned the truth, didn't like what he heard, decided to fight it. That's not stupid. You can't fight God. You can't destroy truth. You can do all kinds of things, but you can't destroy truth. If it's true, it's true. If it's not, it's not. You can't destroy it. You can lie about it. You can hide it. You can cover it, but you can't destroy it. Why would anyone react like, well, in Herod's case, it was extreme self-centeredness. It came out as power hunger, insane jealousy, and murder. It was simple self-centeredness gone wild. I want what I want. I want it now. I will stop at nothing to get it. If I have to divide God to get it, tough. I know that's the truth, but I don't agree, so I will fight to get it because I want it, and I want it now. Never know anybody like that? Surely not. You know, it kind of reminds me of the priests. After Jesus lays, raised Lazarus from the dead, Lazarus has been dead four days, word got back to Jerusalem, which is only six or seven miles from Bethany, where Jesus raised Lazarus. And uh, the priests got together to discuss what they were going to do with Jesus. And what they decided? They decided they needed to kill Jesus and Lazarus too. Now, how do you go about killing a man who's already been dead once? And the guy got him back, brought him back from there. What were they thinking? Our world is full of those who are openly antagonistic to the truth. And I'm not including the Muslim terrorists. They think they're following truth. I'm talking about those who know what God wants but refuse to act on or simply know the truth about things around them and refuse to accept it. I wonder, some of those who fight the display of the Ten Commandments in public places... Is there only reason that it seems to push one religion over another? Sometimes I doubt it. What about the producers of much anti-Christian entertainment? Why do they do it when family-friendly makes more money? What about the militant whatevers that shout in the streets? What about the high school kid who decides to identify as a girl so he can win its sports in the girls' things when he was just mediocre in the boys' events? You know what I've decided? I'm going to identify as Rick Smiths and go play for the Pacers. I'm not really almost 78. I'm 53. I'll still be the oldest player in the NBA. Now, why can't I do that? Scientists ridicule religion. Politicians. Do politicians trade truth for power? You suppose? Don't get me started. That's what Herod did. What about our own acquaintances who refused to come to the Lord because they'd have to change their lifestyle too much? Their antagonism is not open. But they do refuse to act even when they know the truth. And maybe they go in the next group. The priests and the teachers of the law. What kind of example are they? Now this one usually gets overlooked. We hardly notice they're there. Matthew 2, when he had called together all the chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, he replied, for this is what the prophet has written. 
But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Now these men are not like Herod. They had nothing to lose. They were not threatened. No position in danger. Unlike Herod, they were also truly Jews and should be pleased that God's promise to the Jews was about to be fulfilled. See, Herod wasn't really a Jew. He was an Idumean, descended from some of Israel's enemies of centuries back. He was only king of the Jews through his own political abilities and friendship with some of the folks at the powers that be in Rome. He had been given, well, his father had been given the title, and then it passed on to Herod. <clears throat> the men he asked about the prophecy, however, were the descendants of the generations of leaders of the Jews. Although the true priesthood had been diluted and contaminated over the centuries, the priests of Herod's day were as good as the nation had as far as religious leaders was concerned. They knew the scriptures. They knew the promise of the coming Christ. Now, we know and love Jesus, right? How many of us can remember where the prophecy is found that they quoted so quickly? Somebody got the right book. Micah. They knew. Teaching the prophecies was their business. But did they drop everything and go with the wise men? No. Did they send gifts to add to the gifts the wise men brought? Nope. It sure doesn't look like it. What did they do? Nothing. They told Herod what he asked and went back to their books. They also had truth handed to them out of the blue. What did they do with it? Nada. Zilch. Nothing. Their reaction to truth was total apathy, studied indifference. Now, most of our world is not like Herod. We're more like the businessman sitting on the park bench enjoying the spring breezes during his lunch hour, and a rather frenzied man rushes up to him and says, the whole world is falling apart. Do you know why? No, the businessman said, I can't say I do. Ignorance and apathy, the man blurted. So, says the businessman, what's that to me? The priests and teachers, however, could not plead ignorance. They knew the truth. They knew the prophecies. They believed them. But they were still apathetic. They still did nothing. They were guilty of study without action, knowledge without life, information without change. And this kind of indifference is insidious, contagious, and strangling. A person who reacts like these priests, apathetic toward the truth, often fills the holes in his life with enthusiasm for the unreal or unimportant. He will yell himself hoarse at the ball game. But in church, if he goes at all, he sings, Isn't the love of Jesus something wonderful? Wonder she would have a fit if someone stole her Bible. Has anyone seen my Bible? It's awful. It's time for church. I can't find my Bible. Where did you have it last? Right here. I left it here last week when we got home from church. Ouch. It gets too close to home. Well, there's another attitude, another group whose attitude is somewhat like the priest, but with a different twist. They know the scriptures well, like the teachers of the law. They know all the up-to-date information on science in the Bible. The Shroud of Turin can give you the details of every expedition to Mount Ararat in search of the ark. They jump from one Bible study to another. They call preachers they never met, ask detailed questions about where Cain got his wife, or who the two witnesses of Revelation might be. 
I know. I've talked to a boatload of them over there. I used to get letters from people like that. Usually handwritten, two or three pages, closely spaced letters about all these questions and things they knew that nobody else knew. I kept a file of those letters. It grew to be more than a quarter of an inch thick, and I finally threw it away. They're much like those Paul describes in 2 Timothy 3.7, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. As soon as teaching begins to get close to where they live, they'll bring up some troublesome question or another, a question with no answer. Any of you ever studied debate in high school or college? Do you know what a red herring is? It comes from a practice in England years ago where thieves were often chased down by bloodhounds. No cars to get into. They had to run. And uh, the thief, if he was smart and planned well, would get a pickled fish, a red herring, rather odious red herring. And when he left where he had stolen the stuff, he'd get a little ways, and he'd take the red herring and drag it across the path, leave it beside the path. Here comes a bloodhound. One whiff of the red herring and the poor hound's olfactory senses are destroyed for a day, couldn't track a skunk across the road. A red herring has become a figure of speech for the kind of question that distracts you so you can't answer. It's, it's like the woman at the well, talking about water and all that. And just as soon as Jesus revealed he knew about her rather sordid marital history, she asked a deep theological question. Where are we supposed to worship, in this mountain or down at Jerusalem? Jesus answered her, but he also challenged her. That true worship wasn't in a special place, but was in spirit and in truth. Now, the priests and the scribes knew the truth about the child who'd been born. But did they have the spirit to go and worship him? No. Only the strangers did that. And their reaction to truth, however, is well worth copying these wise men from far off lands. Their reaction was to give themselves wholeheartedly to the truth, no matter how much it cost them. When they saw the star and understood whatever message it was that God had given them, they set out to do something about it. Now, did you know there is nothing, not one word in the Old Testament, that tells us a star would come as a symbol of the birth of the Christ child? We often think that all God ever said to people was what we find here. Uh-uh. In this case, anyway, these guys knew what this star stood for. They knew who it stood for. And they said, okay, let's go worship him. And they followed this star. All this garbage about the alignment of prophets and souls. You'll go to a planetarium sometimes see a show about the star of Bethlehem is a bunch of, excuse me, trying to hide the truth. My dad's favorite word would be hogwash for that kind of thing. Because this was a star that moved. They followed it. They had followed it for a long time. Whatever the message was, it cost them a lot of time and money to follow. How far did they come? We don't know. It says they were from the east. How far is that? We can't say for sure, but you can't get much east of Judea without running into the great Arabian desert. Hundreds of miles across. From the east implies a whole lot more than just the next village over or even beyond the Jordan. They almost had to be from beyond the desert, at least 10 days hard camel ride 
But they didn't come across. They had to come around. Going across that desert was almost certain death. Still is, by the way. If they first saw the star when Jesus was born and started out then, they had been at least six weeks on the road. We know that because in Luke chapter 2, it tells how Mary and Joseph took Jesus to the temple to offer the sacrifice that was required for each firstborn child, each firstborn son. And that was to be done seven weeks, excuse me, six weeks after the birth, 40 days. And Mary and Joseph had already done that and gone back to Bethlehem. So these guys, if that was the th thing that, that triggered, they'd been on the road for six weeks. They'd been on the road again and again and again. And believe me, a camel is no Cadillac. Old pickup, old Chevy pickup rides a whole lot better, doesn't it, Brad? I've never been on a camel, but I know it can't be as comfortable as that old truck. Why did they go to such expense, such trouble? The gifts they brought were not cheap gift shop trinkets bought at the last minute at the Bethlehem Square Mall. You know the, you know the little, little gift shop on the south end, the run, one run by Easy Kaya? Uh, you can get good myrrh there for half price, one-fourth the regular price if you wait till Christmas Eve. No, 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 that wasn't the way it was. Gold was as expensive then as now. Frankincense was a very costly imported incense. Myrrh was much the same. But where active antagonism like Herod's was self-centered and the apathy and indifference of the priests is often self-righteous, the wise men were self-sacrificing beyond what we can begin to imagine. This cost them in Money and time, big time. Sure, they may have had more money at home and more gifts they could have bring. But this was no idle intellectual exercise so they could say, we came, we saw, we worshipped. What had their fellow scholars said when they left the, on this trek? Judea, king of the Jews? Judea is a tiny little place. No king from there is ever going to amount to anything. Why, why do you want to go? You know what will happen to your reputation as a scholar? When you get back home from this wild goose chase, I mean, there won't be anybody believe you. you. You'll lose your seat at the university, and you'll never get hired to anybody else. People just laugh at what you... You imagine what it would cost these guys? But they came anyway. What must they have thought about halfway there when the heat and thirst were well nigh unbearable during the day and the desert cold at night sucked all their strength? What happened to the resolve when days stretched into weeks and the... Saddle sores from the camels, screened with every lurching camel's tail. What was the reaction of Herod? Did they see through his facade? When he called them aside, said, "Go find the king. Come, tell me where he is, so I can worship him too." Did they realize his true motive? Were they aware of his insanity? This guy is nuts. What have we gotten ourselves into? We should have asked somewhere else. You know, it wouldn't have been. Unheard of for Herod to have killed them because they brought the news. You know, don't like the news, you kill the messenger. And what did they think when they came to the stable? Oh, that's right, they didn't come to the stable. They came to a house. But you can bet your bottom dollar that star led the house the star led them to was no king's mansion. But they worshipped anyway. Why? Because their commitment to truth act, made them act on what they knew even if it didn't seem to fit what they thought should be. And though their names and number will never be known this side of heaven, regardless of the Christmas carol, We Three Kings, we do not know their names. We do not know if there were three of them. We just know they brought three kinds of gifts. We do not know exactly where they came from, regardless of the guy who said he discovered 
where the wise men came from, they were the kings of Ori and Tar. Sorry about that. Ever since these three mysterious kings have been celebrated in pageant, song, and Christmas card, Herod longed to be king and fought for it. Herod went down in history as one of the greatest villains of all time. Most people know little of his building feats, though he was one of the greatest of ancient royal planner builders. Did you know there are buildings standing today that Herod built? I didn't do the hands-on work, but he planned and had them built. Ever watch the news if there's something on about something other than impeachment? You might see some news about Israel. And they talk about Hebron, and they'll show a great mosque in the background. You know what that actually is? That's the building Herod built above the tomb where Abraham and Sarah and Isaac are buried. You can see it today. But do people know that? No, they know Herod as a crazy king who tried to kill the baby Jesus. But these mysterious, shadowy stargazers bowed before the baby king, and ever since we've called them kings. Now what does that say about reaction to truth? If we act on the truth we know, God will honor that. I truly believe he will. And one final example in this story that we know much better, we think. And that's Mary and Joseph. But the truth cost them too. Do we know that story as well as we think we do? Can you imagine how totally unbelievable this all was to both of them? When Mary heard the news from the angel and told the angel, whatever God wants, that I'll do. You know what her next thought was? What will Joseph think? What will Joseph do? What will I do? Now, adultery was punishable by death. If Joseph wanted to push it, he could have her killed. And if Joseph chose to abandon her, what then? She wouldn't have any recourse. Nobody would take her in. When Joseph found out Mary was pregnant, how did he react? You're going to what? You're going to have God's baby? Right. Man, this woman I'm engaged to isn't just a slut. She's a nut. She's crazy. And when the angel came to him in his dream and explained it all, he says, Boy, that's the last time I eat so much goat cheese and matzo balls right before I go to bed. That was the weirdest dream. And Mary, that night in the stable when the labor pains came and there wasn't even a midwife there to help, did she regret what she had said to the angel, Let it happen to me as you have said? And when they set out for Egypt, either with a caravan of travelers, which wasn't likely. They were probably alone. The text says they left that night. What did they think? What were their worries? Maybe I over-romanticized these two just a little. But somehow I often think they thought, Oh, Lord, we don't understand why you're doing it this way, but here goes. If this is what you want us to do. Do you know how far they had to go to get to Egypt? Maybe they walked. Maybe they rode a donkey. Maybe they had a cart pulled by a donkey. But if they had a cart, it didn't have any cushy seats or fancy springs. Do you know how far it was? A little further than from here to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Now, which of you want to, to join me? Walk to Pittsburgh. We'll start this afternoon. No, thank you. I'm an old man. I ain't going. But I wouldn't try it even if I were young. That's how far they went. Over 425 miles. How long does it take you with a toddler at best, maybe a baby? I wonder if he was old enough to say, are we there yet? Are we there yet? 
Joseph had to make a living and find a home. Thank God the gifts from the, master, the wise men had been so generous. I'm sure they helped. But I know that as the coins dwindled in his belt, he must have wondered how long they would last. But do we get a hint that they doubted any of God's messages? Not like Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, who doubted the angel who came to him. There's not the slightest whisper that they were rebellious or complaining. For all its unbelievability, they knew the truth of who this baby was, and they acted on it. And with quiet obedience, they treasured the truth as surely as they cradled that little baby in their arms. They treasured the truth in their hearts. Now the question is, how do we react to truth? Into which group do we fall? This is way out past how we are able to filter through all the intellectual or informational garbage that is thrown at us and determine what is true and what is not. This has to do with what we do with the truth we know and how we act in response to the truth we have and how we follow the one who said, I am the truth. Folks, Jesus would rather have two who would truly follow and obey him than 200 who believe him or 2,000 who agree with him. What will he say about how we react to truth? Who is the truth? Someone said it this way. You call me the light, but see me not. You call me the way, but walk me not. You call me life and desire me not. You call me fair and love me not. You call me rich, but ask me not. You call me eternal, but long for me not. You call me mighty and honor me not. You call me just, but fear me not. You call me truth, but believe me not. You call me master and obey me not. If I condemn you, blame me not. <clears throat> Folks, truth is found in Jesus and in his word. Now, does that mean we have to keep it perfectly? No, none of us ever will, me least of all. You know, one of the hazards of preaching is feeling like you can stand up and say anything to anybody else when you know every day when you look in the mirror how far you fall short. It's really hard to do. But if we are committed to the truth we know, I'll do it, no matter how hard it is, as long as the Lord gives me voice and opportunity, and I hope we all will. It is not easy to look into God's Word and say, well, what does He have to say to us, to me today? I've often told young preachers, feed yourself first. Meaning, let the text get into your life first. And I so often feel condemned by it. But we've got to think about it. Truth is found in Jesus and in His Word. We cannot oppose it without destroying ourselves. We cannot ignore it without extreme danger. We have in him a nugget of pure truth, and the only proper reaction is to follow him without quibbling or complaining, to follow him all the way home and ask for his forgiveness when we fail. But don't fight it. Don't ignore it. Accept it as true. and Keep putting one step in front of the other like Mary and Joseph must have done on the way to Egypt for however many days it would take to walk 425 miles. 
I've walked a lot of those steps over the years and a lot of sidetracks. But God help me to keep walking one step at a time according to the truth I know. May that be your prayer as well. Our dear Father in heaven, I pray that what I've said is not condemning, but is helpful to challenge us all. Lord, you know how far I fall short, how little time I spend in your things, and how many and much in my own, how often I ignore what you want. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us all to see as we live our life by truth day by day, we can be an example around to those around us and rest in the assurance that you are our guide. God help us. In Jesus' name.